Good morning. Good to see you all again. As we have an opportunity to, uh, again, enjoy one another's fellowship and the uh, opportunity to worship the Lord this morning. Uh, as I almost probably say almost every time I get up here, it's a fearful thing to stand, as the Puritan said, behind this sacred desk and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a, great, uh, there's a great weight that comes upon that, that God places upon men who have opportunity to preach and to expand and to open the gospel and the word of God to his people. If you take your Bible, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 3 and verse 4. I'm sure some of you are saying, great, we're going to go through the book of Romans. No, we're not. It would take about 10 years to go through the book of Romans. But I want to just read a phrase which is technically not my text, but it will do this morning. Romans chapter 3 and verse 4, actually in the, buried in the middle of that, it says in verse 4, let God be true. That's it. That should give us plenty of time. Let God be true. Let's ask the Lord to bless that word this morning. Father, thank you again for your people, for this opportunity to open your word. Father, what an, an intense privilege it is to have that word of God in front of us, to have that word that has been breathed by the living God, uh, expand, uh, open to us and expanded, and that the Spirit of God would teach us. This morning, thank you for your faithfulness and your fellowship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been reading at this in my Bible reading for the year through the Old Testament, and I cannot divest myself from the actions and the reactions, the thoughts and the motivations of that nation Israel. Listen, we're all cut out of the same cloth, if you want to, if you want to look at it that way. Adam and Eve in the fall. You can't go any further than that, and you can't get away from that. The only thing that is between us is the God who is over all things. We each have a God view, a world view, and a self view. For the Christian, it should be one and the same. If you're not a Christian, it could be three different ones, three different views. And to me, that would be very confusing. Someone said, that the worldview today is whateverism. Any debate, any idea is whatever. And you go on with your own ideas and dismiss everything else. Someone else said that those who are graduating today get a degree in opinions, not in truths or facts. And Justice Kennedy, years ago, having spoken on Planned Parenthood, said this, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. You can define that all on your own, because you are who you are. So that's what he said. 
And for the Supreme Court Justice, I want to tell you right now, he is dead wrong. That is wrong. Romans 3, 4 said, let God be true. Even for us as Christians, we may struggle with some of these views or these ideas, depending on how old you are in the Lord and and what God has done for you and how much time you spend in his word. But I want to address one and quickly, carefully, we'll talk about the other two and put them in place. And so let me put it this way. If you, if you, as you sang the hymns this morning, you'll notice they all had to do with God, the great God, the creation of God, God's creation and everything else. So my title, I guess you could say today, would, though I use the text, let God be true, let God be God. Think about that. Let God be God. Now that should run a few things through your mind. Let me start with the word let. I'm going to give you PhDs in English a few seconds to determine the part of speech, the type, and the definition of it. I flunked English in junior and high school, so I'm not going to say this is all correct and accurate. But I did a little research. It's an intransitive verb, having a direct object. That's pretty impressive, huh, that I could say something like that? Sure, there are other technicalities involved that, but God is the subject. But God is also the direct object of who he is. God is the subject, and he is also the direct object. Let God be God. I've been thinking a lot about that over these uh, trying times, I guess, in the past decade or so. Not that they haven't been before. You cannot have God as the subject and you as the object. You cannot have God as the subject and the government as the object. You cannot have God as the subject in your family, your friends, your country, your money, or your job as the object. Let God be God. For the Christian, God must be the subject and the direct object. You can see how this could go south really quickly if your English grammar was out of whack. Never mind how quickly it could go south if your spiritual life is out of whack as well. It's interesting, as I don't know if you've noticed it, but I have in the, in the past months, is that there's a lot of scamming going on, not only on your computer, but your, your phone. It's, 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 it's crazy. But more often than not, if you look carefully, when things come into your phone or your email, whatever, there's a hook that always tries to get your attention. Usually in the head, the the front line or or the the uh, the the main focus of what that is, or the tagline. And there seems to be always something, as I've noticed, grammatically wrong. Again, I'm not a big I'm not a big English guy, but as you look at these things and you start to read carefully, there's always something wrong, whether it's font or type or syntax or grammar. Something is wrong if it's phony, for the most part. And that's a good giveaway right away. Some of it, I've even laughed at. It's so funny. They have no idea what they're saying, so I don't even know where they're coming from as far as trying to speak English. 
though it's a difficult language. We've discussed that with somebody who speaks a number of languages. But no, obviously, you have to know correct grammar to pick up on it. And really, it is not the same. Is it not the same in your spiritual life? You start fudging on your spiritual grammar, your spiritual spelling, your jots and your tittles, your fine points, little points of doctrines and truths, and you can go south pretty fast. But it can also be a telltale sign that there is something wrong with the person who's speaking if he's not speaking spiritual grammar. We hear phrases like live and let live, let bygones be bygones, let well enough alone, let sleeping dogs lie, and let sleeping babies sleep. That's my favorite, let sleeping babies sleep. For us, the concept of let God be God is not new, but it is necessary. My question to you and me today is, do or are we letting God be God always or when convenient? Why should we let God be God? I think that's something we all need to consider. Why? Let me break it down this way. Two things. Who he is, why we should let God be God is because of who he is and what he does. And secondly, who we are, what we know, and how we respond. Martin Luther, during a very difficult time, and the Reformation was a very difficult time for the most part, Martin Luther, when, can, when asked by one of his friends as they were about to enter some very impending troubles, I can picture him. As he looked at his friend, he held out his arms and he said, Friend, let God be God. And that's, what it's, that's where we need to be, is to let God be God. Now, I don't want to sound abrasive here, but... God is going to be God whether you let him or not. God is going to be God whether you like it or not. God is going to be God whether you want it or not. And for the Christian, he must be both the subject and the object of our very lives. The response of Martin Luther was not just some quaint little adage that I mentioned, let sleeping dogs lie, let this, let that. But here, it was something based upon a more substantial and a profound realization of the true and the living God. That's what he meant when he said, let God be God. Because he knew the God of heaven. Now, 40 or 50 years ago, in our Christianity, my wife and I, it's not ours, we don't own it, but back in the day when we were young, there was something I used to call placitis. It was all the popular verses and the sayings that were put on plaques and put on your wall and sold in Christian bookstores. Now, I looked at one today, it's still in my house, so 
Don't anybody go running out of here and say, Mike is against plaques and he's against Bible verses. Because I'm not. But think about that for a moment. Let God be God. You can say, well, that's a, that's a plaque verse right there. But let God be God. Is it substantial? Is it profound in your life? Not just something you hang on the wall because you got as a gift that you bought. And you say, I like that verse. But is it substantial and profound? Do we know the, the context of the verse? Do we have the background, the history? Everything's and substantial and profound surrounding it. And I use that with that phrase, let God be God. Do we know everything that surrounds that phrase? And that's the difference. Because more than one cult and one error... More than one heresy has started by a favorite verse that somebody came up with over the centuries. Really, who is he? Who is God? Today, everywhere we hear and we see people, we read about them. I won't be specific. I'm sure you can, a few may come to mind. We hear about their stories, their biographies, their lifestyles. Are one thing, and then weeks or months later, there was nothing true about what they originally said. It comes out all the time. I think of one that really affects me is when I hear some of these men who talk about who are in the military. They call it stolen valor. Oh, I did this, I did that, I went here, I went there, and they never did. That's bothersome to me, especially as I think of my son in Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq. And these men who wear these, all these ribbons, and yet they're as phony as the day is long. They tell you what you want to hear, and that destroys integrity and veracity and character. Everything of who they are disintegrates into nothing, leaving you to ask, who were they really? You're a Christian one day, you're an atheist the next. Really? Are you kidding me? They tell you what you want to hear, and then... Wow, you're blown away to find out the real truth. But who is he, God? You really have to ask the question, is he theoretical or is he theological? Is he popular or is he personal? Is he one among many or is he one over all? You've got to ask yourself that question with that phrase, let God be God. Proverbs 9.10 says, the knowledge of the holy is understanding. What do we know of him? And Job 22 says, acquaint now thyself with him. Now that word acquaint is a depth of intimacy. That's why Peter tells to husbands to know their wives. 
to know who they are. If I was to ask you what kind of flowers does she like, what kind of, what's her favorite food, what's, don't ask me, that could be a problem. How intimately acquainted are we with God? How profound and substantial do you know God to be able to say, let God be God? With the living God, it's different. He's transcendent, yet he's imminent. I mean, unfortunately, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this, but I I can't do that. I already went over my Sunday school time, so I can't do that either. But God, he's transcendent in He's beyond all our comprehension, but yet he is intimate with us. Everything about us, he's experiential. The things around us, the things he, he brings before us, he's imminent, he's here. He's not somebody out there in Never Never Land. He's here. He's the God of all creation. He's made all things for his glory. And you know, the Bible also says for his pleasure. I don't know if you knew that. All things for his glory and his pleasure. God is pleased by the things he's made for us. God is unchangeable. He's above all things. He cannot lie. And we could go on and on and on with his attributes and his truth. But I have to tell you, but who is he? Is he somebody like in the press that one week he's this and another week he's that? No, he's never changed. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm not. I've changed. Sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. But God doesn't change. That's why we can let God be God in our lives, in what we do, and where we go, and how we act, and how we think. God is the subject and the object of the Christian life. J.I. Packer said this. He says the conviction, he's talking about the book Knowing God. If you haven't read it, you should. It was a life changer for me four years into my salvation. Untaught by the scriptures, of course, secondarily. Packer said, the conviction behind the book Knowing God is that ignorance of God, I want you to listen to what he has to say. Not that you're not, but I, I want to emphasize that. The conviction behind the book, knowing God, is that ignorance of God, ignorance both of his ways and of the practice of communion with him, getting fellowshipping with him, knowing him, lies at the much of the church's weakness today. Two unhappy trends seem to have produced this state of affairs. Number one, this that Christian minds have been conformed to the modern spirit, the spirit now, and again, you got to listen to this, the spirit that is, that spawns great thoughts of man and leaves 
room only for small thoughts of God. That's trend one. Trend two, Christian minds have been confused by the modern skepticism. For more than three centuries, the naturalistic leaven of the Renaissance outlook has been working like a cancer in Western thought. You'd have to look up the Renaissance and what it did and the higher, higher criticism, the intellectualism and everything, and God kind of went out the window. He became small. Now, see, what's so significant about that? You know when that book was written? 1973. He's speaking 50 years ago. I wonder what he would think today. It was so significant of a book that it went through nine printings in three years. That's pretty good. Nine printings in three years. Now, 90 years ago, which when this was written, which makes it 140 years ago, Mr. Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, he described the wobblings he saw among the Baptists in Europe, London, on Scripture, the Atonement, and human destiny, and it was called, some of you may know, the downgrade controversy. Could he survey the Protestant thinking about God at the present time, Packer says today, I guess he would probably speak it as a nosedive and not a downgrade. Now let me look at a passage of Scripture for a moment. If you want to take your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. I just want to skim through it again. I've taken an, an inexhaustible subject and trying to confine it within 45 minutes, which probably won't happen. Isaiah, chapter 40. Let me just skim through that. 18 through 31. Now, we're talking about who is God. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? What about God? Who is he? Or what likeness will you compare him with? And then he goes on and shows some contrast. The workman molds an image. A goldsmith overspreads it with gold. Again, it's a false idol. The silversmith casts silver change. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not taught. I have to laugh at this because, you know, there's, uh, as you look at that, um, it, it, it's kind of interesting. There's a high-end God and there's a low-end God. What do you mean? Well, if you, if you are worth, if you have anything, you could do gold. But if you don't, just go get a tree. And carve it out and it'll be a God. So everybody can have a God. You know what? Everybody has a God today. Every single person worships something today. Everybody. Here and out there. And here, you could have a gold God, you could have a tree God. It's crazy. From my perspective, as I understand the scriptures and where I've come from and what God has done for me, and, and, and having come to know him, over 50 years. 
And notice he says that, have you not known? Have you not heard? Have it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, which is interesting because Galileo was right on the money back in the 1500s when the church was trying to destroy him because they were flat earth. And here we see he's sitting on the circle of the earth. Do you know that? Tells you right in the scriptures, the earth is round. Or it's circular, which is kind of round. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Grasshoppers who stretch out, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell. Think about who this God is as he's talking about. He spreads the, 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 the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. The princes, these are the rulers. These are the politicians. These are the people in charge. He brings them to nothing. And he makes the judges of the earth useless. This is God. Is that your God? Is that how you understand God? Let God be God. Is he that, ob- that subject of our thinking? And again, I, we could spend forever. This has been... Hot, uh, 1,200 pages, Stephen Shannock, The Existence and Attributes of God. One topic. It's been written about everywhere. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. When he will also blow on them and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Who are you going to liken God to? You know anybody? Anybody who's rich and famous? Anybody who has billions of dollars? Elon Musk, um, all these other people, billions. and Who are you going to liken me to? He said, even a guy like that is a grasshopper compared to God. To whom then will you liken me? Or, or whom shall I be equal? There is no equal to God Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by God? Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints, he's not weary, his understanding is unsearchable, he gives power to the weak and to those who have no increase in strength. And then he goes on that we shall mount up like wings as eagles. That's God. That's just that's just a, I, I didn't even scratch the surface. But that's God. And we're to let God be God. So who is he? He's not somebody who changes with the newspaper. Oh, when the media find out who you really are, they write about you and say, oh, I didn't know that. It comes out all the time, all the time, every day. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, 
forever. He is the God who sits on the circle of the earth. No one else can do that. He's a God who is transcendent above all things, but yet imminent in your lives and mine. So that's who he is in a nutshell. Now what does he do? You see, in order to let God be God, you've got to know who he is. But you've got to know what he does. You say, well, yeah, I, I, I know all this stuff. He's, he's a big God and all this. But what does he do? What has he done? Just turn over to the book of Job. And again, I, I, I can only flip through this. Job chapter 38. If you want to read... <laughs> You want to read about God, you look at Job chapter 38, 39, 40, as, as uh, God speaks to Job directly. First chapter, uh, chapter 38 of Job, and again, let me just mention a few points. Then Job, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, now, if you understand the book of Job, he had lost everything, his three friends were there to encourage him and console him. And then Elihu came in, a younger guy, and he seemed to have some pretty good ideas and, and so on. And then, you know, then God breaks in after they get through with all their, you know, discussions and all their things to Job. Job interacts with them. But in verse 30, chapter 38, And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Isn't that great? Who do you think you are? You have no idea. You know nothing. You know nothing. Who are you? Words without knowledge. That's great. Now prepare yourself like a man, and I'm going to ask you some questions. And you shall answer me. Can you imagine that? God coming down here and say, hey, listen, I got a couple of questions for you. I, I, I don't know about you, but that would be quite a problem. I can't even answer my own questions. Now God himself, out of a whirlwind, is going to ask me some questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Um, uh, right, exactly. You were nowhere. Tell me if you have any understanding. Who determined its measurements? Did you measure the earth? Did you get the circumference and the diameter? Did you figure out all the things that were going to go on when I put this thing together? And what were its foundations fastened? And yeah, how are you going to hold this thing together and keep it from flying off into eternity? How are you going to do that? Now, see, we're already done, all of us. We're done. Because that's God. And if you don't see God that way, then you will never be able to let God be God in your life. Never. It's a hard, it's a hard saying. It's a hard thought. It's a hard practice to keep that in your mind and heart that this is the God that we served and the God who saved us and bought us with a price. Where were you? Where, where were you when I put all the stars together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The angels. Where were you when, when all this was taking place? You were nowhere. 
Well, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments in thick darkness, its swaddling band, when I fixed my limits for it and set bars and doors, continents and, and oceans and, and, and everything else, thus far you may come but no further. And here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since the days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It takes on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. The wicked, their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. Have you entered into the spring? And it goes on for two chapters. Where were you? Who are you compared to me? That's pretty impressive. That God, first of all, would have a discussion with Job. But wonderfully bring all this out to him to show him who he was and who he is. And this is what he does. This is his job is to keep all this going in his providential care that he started from the foundation of the earth. And it's still going today according to his purpose and plan. And guess what? God changes not. Nothing has changed from his purposes when he said, here, where were you when I prepared the foundations of the earth? How secure is that? How amazing is that? How exciting is that? To thinking, I know who God is, now I know what he does, and it's beyond my comprehension. You can't comprehend that. But you can read about it, and you can bank on it. They say you can take the money to the bank on it. William Green, in his book, The Argument of the Book of Job, he taught in Princeton at 1846, a little before my time. But he said this, It is not the design of God, as he speaks of Job, it's, and I like what he says, listen, It is not the design of God to offer a vindication of his dealings with men in general, or a justification of his providence towards God. You know what that says? I don't owe you any explanation. Nothing. I don't owe you any explanation. But we have a God who loves us enough to give us an explanation. Can you imagine? God gives us an explanation, even though he says, Green says, God didn't have to do this. He didn't. He has no intention of placing himself at the bar of his creatures and erecting them into judges of his conduct. No man can judge God. He is not amenable to them, and he does not recognize their right to be censors of him or his ways. The righteousness of his providence does not depend on their perceiving or even admitting it. In other words, it doesn't matter what you think. God is God. And that's why we have to let God be God. If you try to figure it out, it is going to be difficult. 
God is God. The Lord does not stand on the defensive, nor allow it to appear as though he were in any need of being relieved from the strictures of Job, or it were of any account to him whether feeble worms approved his dealings or confessed the propriety of his dispensation or his stewardship. I love that. Feeble worms. That's me. That's me. I don't have to approve his dealings. Why? Because the scriptures say in the book of Genesis, chapter 28, the God of all the earth will do right. You never have to worry about God doing the wrong thing. Never. Me, not so much. You, same. God does not ever do the wrong thing. He puts himself in a totally different attitude and moves upon quite another plane. He is the sovereign Lord of all, accountable to no being but himself. He does not appear to vindicate himself, but to rescue Job. Again, it's just an amazing thing that God of the universe would reach down to an individual who was allowed to lose everything in order to bring him to the right knowledge, the right perspective, and the right order of things in understanding who God is. Incredible. Incredible. See, this puts us in a very, I want you to get it. I'm preaching to me. This, this message is for me. It's not for you. Really. That's my wife. It's for me. This puts us in a very particular relationship with the living God in my redemption. I can't emphasize that enough. I can't try to comprehend it enough. This particular relationship with the God that we just talked about for you and for me. You see, the Pharisees knew about God. The Sadducees knew about God. The devil knows about God. The cults know about God, in a sense. But they have no particular relationship with him that you and I have. If you're a Christian, a born-again believer today. None whatsoever. You do not have a religion. You have a relationship with God. You have a relationship that's so big and so deep that you spend your whole life cultivating that. Or you should spend your whole life cultivating that relationship. Why? Because there's so much to learn and so much you will never learn about the God of heaven. Let God be God. Who he is, 
and what he does. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Just think about some of these things. We are loved before the foundation of the earth. We are his joy and his crown. We are a peculiar people unto him. We are a royal priesthood. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We are his purchased possession. We are redeemed by his blood. And I I could just go on. Now take every one of those and think about them. That's who God is. That's what God has done. God is the subject of every believer. But do we know that subject as we should? Now, secondly, that's God. In order to let God be God, you've got to know who he is, but you've got to know who you are. Who are we? Who are we? As you think about this. Um, but what do we know about God? If I were to ask a Christian today, who am I or who are we? What would you put down if I gave you a pencil and paper? What would the extent of your writing be on who am I as a Christian? Could you write a sentence, a paragraph, a small book? Right. Who am I? Who are we? And can I really know God if I don't know myself? Listen to what Burkhoff says. Louis Burkhoff and his systematic theology. And, and this was very, to me, was very profound. I mean, all these guys are very profound, unlike myself, but they great, great reading. Burkhoff said this in his subject on anthropology, study of man. He says, man is not only, and I want you to think about this, man is not only the crown of God's creation, but the object of God's special care. Think about that. Not only we the crown, and I'm not pumping you up because we already talked about being a feeble worm, so that takes care of that. But God, man is the crown of creation, the apex of what God created. Why? Because we were his image and likeness. And also the object of his special care. Turkeys aren't. Animals aren't. You are. The object of his special care. God's revelation in Scripture is a revelation that is not only given to man, but also a revelation in which man is vitally concerned. As you read about man in the Scriptures. That's you, and that's me. It is not revelation of God in the abstract, but a revelation of God in relationship to his creatures, and particularly in relationship to man, to you and I. It is a record of God's dealings with the human race. 
and especially a revelation of the redemption which God has prepared for and for which he seeks to prepare man for. Redemption. This accounts for the fact that man occupies a central importance in the scriptures and that the knowledge of man in relation to God is essential to proper understanding. Let me read that again. Let God be God who he is and who we are. The account of, for the fact that man occupies a central importance in Scripture and that knowledge of man in relation to God is essential for proper understanding. For you to let God be God, you have to understand who he is, but you have to understand who you are. Who are we? We were made in his image, and we are of central importance in the scripture. Why? Because God is preparing a people to redeem. The doctrine of man must follow, I like this, the doctrine of man must follow immediately after the doctrine of God, since the knowledge of it is presupposed in all all the following areas of doctrine. Everything. This is about God, and this is about you. I never really thought of it that way until I started thinking about let God be God. Who are we? It's a significant position all through this book. And if God has placed us in a significant position in this book from cover to cover, essentially, then it's got to be pretty important for us to understand who we are and what we're going to do with who he is. And that puts us in that very particular relationship with the living God. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. Now, my wife bought me this book because I think she thought it looked interesting, but there may have been ulterior motives. It's called The Grumbler's Guide to Giving Thanks. Yeah, go ahead, laugh it up. Now, immediately I thought of that, but years ago there used to be a, a movie called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe or something like that. But anyways, that's what I thought of when I thought of this. But you know what? I've been reading it. It's very well done. I accept it wholeheartedly. And I do tend to grumble. So you're admitting that in front of all these people? Yeah, and everybody else out there. Absolutely. What can I say? It's, it, it's not right. We shouldn't grumble. We should be the most joyous people in the world. I admit it. Don't always do it. Yeah, I know. You're saying the same thing. But listen to what he says here. So not only who we are, but what we know. You know, if you don't know anything, then you, in a lot of ways you can't be responsible for it. But you know what? If you don't know who you are in relationship to who God is, then that's a problem. So what do we know? What do we know about God? 
We've kind of covered a little bit of that, that, that we are a peculiar people, that we have a particular place in the plan of redemption that God has placed us in. Not you. You didn't place yourself in anywhere. God did. But listen to what this, this is. Page 89, paragraph 2. Jesus saves us from our sin, what we know. Jesus satisfies our emptiness. Listen to what, this is reality in each of our lives. I mean, I don't know any other way to put it. Jesus sustains us in our weariness. Now, I'd ask you, do you ever feel empty? Do you ever feel weary? Oh, yeah. He squelches our fears and he covers our shame when we come to him. Covers our fears, squelches our fears, and he covers our shame. You know, the Hebrew word for atonement, if you listen to the Hebrew word, it's called kafir or kafar. What does that sound like? Cover. And that's what atonement is. Atonement covers the sin that we put Christ on Calvary with. So when there's a, the atonement was made, that sin was covered. And here he says he squelches our fear and he covers our shame. Because when you, I, I don't know about you, but when you got saved and God opened your eyes and you became a new creature, you had to be shameful. You had to be shamed by what God has opened your eyes to and the sin of the past and the sin that you were involved in. But you know what? When he came and he redeemed you, that shame is covered by the blood of Christ and you are now his and sheltered by that. So he squelches our fears, covers our shame. He shelters us in his love and shields us by his power. Jesus sanctifies and matures us by the Spirit's powerful presence and sends us out on a purposeful mission. Every single one of us. What we have in the person and work of Jesus fills our life with grace here it comes, and floods us with gratitude. Grumbler's guide to the giving of thanks. When we know who we are, my wife says often, we should be the most thankful and gratuitous or gracious people, loving people on the face of the earth. Why? Because of who he is, the subject, And what he does, the object, God himself. Let God be God, but you have to know these things. Paul cried out, well, the knowledge of, he says here, the knowledge of the holy is understanding. What do we know? What do you want to know? And how important is it for you to know? Paul cried out, as he had already experienced Christ, he says that I may know him. Intimate knowledge is that word know, and the power of his resurrection. It's a use it or lose it scenario, really. It becomes a focus or failure in our lives. 
I can't uh, forget the disciples even witnessing. I don't blame them because I do the same thing. I mean, come on. There's no such thing as a super saint. If you ever see one, show me, please. There's none out there. The disciples even witnessing and experiencing the miracles of God face to face and partaking of them Forgot what happened. Now you say, what are you talking about? You know, the. I'll just read you this passage in Mark 6. That's why I say it's a, it's a use it or lose it scenario for Christians. If we don't use it, we're going to lose it. Mark 6, 40, 52, they sat down in the ranks by hundreds and fifties. And when he had... Taken the five loaves, two fish, he looked up to heaven, he blessed it, break the loaves, gave to the disciples, set it before them all. The two fishes divided among them all. They did all eat and were filled, and they brought up 12 baskets. There's about 5,000 people. That's a lot for two fish and a couple loaves of bread. A miracle. God does those things. Now, then he said, I'm going to go up to the mountain to pray. I'll meet you over at Bethesda. You take the ship and you go across the wall. You know, you go across Galilee. They get into the ship. They headed across Galilee. The big storm uh, took place. They were toiling, rowing. The wind was contrary, and so on and so forth. Jesus came walking on the water. They had flipped out. They were scared. They thought it was a ghost. And he said, "Be of good cheer. It is I." And he walked up into the boat. And he sat down. And when he went up into the ship, guess what? The wind ceased. The waves ceased, and they were so amazed in themselves, beyond measure, and wondered. And listen to this. this. It was always a concern for me. For they considered not the miracles of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Wait a minute. We're talking the morning. They had a miracle in the morning, and at night, they couldn't understand who this Savior was, or this this person was named Jesus? Now listen, William Hendrickson, he he had a good explanation. I appreciate that in his commentary on Mark. He said, if they had fully understood the significance of the miraculous feeding, and think about it, I I, I don't know, I mean, I try to think of putting myself there and, and how that would have worked for me. As a disciple, not just somebody, you know, sitting on the ground and, and, and having a, a good meal. But if they had fully understood the significance of the miraculous feeding, they would have known that it implied Christ's power to bend the material universe, including not only the product of the soil, bread, but the billows of the sea and the currents of the air to his wishes. The trouble was their hearts, in fact, their hearts were hardened. Now, though this word is used of hardening or petrifying, I've been to the petrified forest, it is pretty amazing that these trees are concrete. He's not talking about that. In this case, it would be better to apply that their heart was in a stupor or sluggishness to grasp the true in full divine power of the Son of God, though they had ascribed to him 
in Matthew 14:33, thou art the Son of God. They even ascribe to him deity. Now, I don't, I'm not talking bad about the disciples. Because how easy is it for us in the morning to be blessed by the God of heaven and in the afternoon be grumbling? <laughs> easy. Is my heart hardened? No, it's sluggish. Now, this should not be confused with the callousness and true hardness of the scribe and Pharisees, and that came from hatred and unbelief. That's different. So, use it or lose it scenario. It is something that we have to understand that we need to let God be God, and God because of who he is and of what we know, who we are, what we know. That is why there is always, and if you think about it in Scripture, there is always a constant call in the Scriptures, as you read through them, to do what? To awake, awake out of sleep, to remember, remember these things, to take heed, to consider, to meditate, and so on. There's all kinds of calls for us, what? Use it or lose it. And it's very easy to lose. We take this, we go home, we do this. Sunday we pick it up, we open it. Something's going to get lost in the translation if we do that. Now, why, does, why is this constant call to remember, to await, to take heed, to consider, to meditate? Why? Think about it. Folks, we get worn out. Last two or three years, I'm worn out. Last decade, last 50 years, I'm getting worn out. We wear out. We get sidetracked. We get discouraged. This is reality. I want no raise of hand, but when's the last time you got discouraged? Oh, I, it's almost daily. You say, that's crazy. No, it's not. It doesn't have to be. But we get discouraged, we get tempted, we get lazy, we get threatened. We get personally hurt or abused, and so on. The list is endless as to why the, the Scriptures call us to remember, to take heed, to awake, to consider, to meditate. Because of all these things, these forces that act upon us to do what? Get us to as low a point as possible so we no longer think of the God of heaven. I, I heard something recently, I read something recently, and it's very distressing. It says, it, it, it said that in a very few short years, Christians will be in the minority in America. Now, I don't kind of know what that means because, you know, everybody's a Christian. But, and due to religionless people, this is either a poll or something, due to religionless people, no religion, no interest, no nothing, just going along in life, many are moving to atheism or agnosticism in America. Certainly, I would wonder about a credible testimony that people that move that far away. So, who we are, 
what we know, and lastly, how we respond. We just respond and grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me go back to, Mr. to, go back to Grumble here, page 90 and 91. When we think about or learn about God, we find reasons to give thanks. God's deeds prompt thanksgiving. God's attributes and character behind his works also promote thanksgiving. To get specific in our thanksgiving to God, we must grow in knowledge of him. How much have you grown in 2022 as we're getting close to closing out the year? How much have you read? How much have you, have, have you added to that list of things that God has done for you? To get specific in our thanksgiving to God, we must grow in knowledge of him by increasing our knowledge of God learned and experienced. We make faith deposits. When we learn of him and we experience the things of God, he says we make faith deposits, which is good. You make a deposit, what? It's there. It's there for you to use when you... If you never make a deposit, you will never have anything to use. These investments pay off with dividends of gratitude and joy, while acquiring general data can puff up like jeopardy, facts or Bible trivia, answers. The knowledge of God changes not. Knowing God doesn't just fill our heads with information, but it produces transformation. You are not the same person the more and more you learn of the God who is the living God. That's why you need to let God be God. It shouldn't roll over us like water off a duck's back. Seeing God leads to savoring God, which leads to responding to God. Matthew 23, 23, said, Jesus said this, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithes of mint, anise, and cumin. In other words, these were the, league, these were the leaders. These were the big heads. These were the, 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 uh, the religious leaders, the, the smart people. He says, you pay tithe in this. You do all the things of the law. But listen to what he says. But you have omitted the weightier. Let that sink in. Say the law. Say the weightier matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not leave the others undone. It's not about all head knowledge. The weightier matters of the things of the law of what God has imparted to you. Wonder, what are these, some of these things? Think about it. Wonder how we respond to God. Do you respond to God as you read the word with wonder? Does it make you say, wow, look at this. I've never seen this before. I've been reading it for 40 years. It's amazing. Does it spark your interest? Does it give you a desire to want more? Does it bring satisfaction? 
I read it, it does nothing for me. Well, that's a problem. That's a problem. It brings love and humility. That's a tough one. It brings delight and trust. How do we respond? If we want to let God be God, then we need to know who God is. We need to know what he does. You need to know who you are. You need to know what you know, and you need to be able to respond based upon who you are and what you know. John Calvin said this. There is not one little, and this is great, there's not one little blade of grass. I love little things, you know, one, one, onesies, twosies. Not one blade of grass. There is no color in this world that is not intended to make men rejoice. That, I, I, I could have never thought of that. I could have never said that. There's not one thing that God has not done that is not intended to make you rejoice. Not one thing. I know, that's, that, that's, pretty, that's hurtful. <laughs> it's hurtful for me because I don't think that way. All the time. And then he goes on to say, when you are blind to the stunning, expansive glory of God, when you fail to remember his infinite greatness, you will live with an atrophied heart. Kind of a dead heart if you don't see these things. Rather than your view of life continuing to expand to the size of God's incomprehensible grandeur. Only the Puritans can do this. Incomprehensible grandeur. And I underline this. Your perspective on, and think about this, your perspective on life will shrink to the size, and this is going to hurt, of personal hopes and personal dreams or to the size of what is surrounding physical, only the physical world has to offer. If we are not captivated by the incomprehensible grandeur of the God of heaven, we will revert to our own personal hopes and dreams, and those are pretty sad sometimes, pretty sad, when we see the grandeur of God all around us. You will eat little of the true and satisfying food of God's glory, and you will try to feed yourself on the non-nutritive morsels of the temporary glories of creation. We have people that worship creation. You know that, right? They worship the trees and the forest. But that's all they have. That's all there is. Because you're not getting proper spiritual nutrition, you will be constantly hungry. Your spiritual muscles will shrink. And you will be unable to live as God intended you to live. What a marvelous statement. It's so true. It affects us all. So let me leave you with this. Let God be God. Know him. Know what he's done. 
Know yourself. Know where you fit in. And respond to that. Let God be God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the time you've given us. Bless this opportunity we've had. Bless your word. May it be an encouragement to us. Thank you for your faithfulness to your people. Father, and thank us. Thank you for the, 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 just the understanding of who, who the God of heaven is and yet how important a part that you have placed your people, the human race that you've created in your image and likeness, in position with the God of heaven in preparation for redemption that we may see the glorious uh, uh, God that we know and that we serve. In Jesus' name, amen.